When was the last time you were watching a movie and thought to yourself, that's not possible. How many laws of physics will they actually break in this movie? Or maybe you thought, I wish I had an invisibility cloak or get beamed to work so I don't have to commute. Today we're going to look at a few different concepts in science fiction and ask, are they actually possible in real life? Can the magic of science make my favorite movies and books become a reality? This is Spark Dialogue Podcast. You can find us at sparkdialogue.com, on Facebook and Twitter, or wherever you find your podcasts. Spark Dialogue tells the stories of science and technology and how they're related to our society, art, literature, culture, and our lives. I'm your host, Elizabeth Fernandez. Getting to space is expensive. It costs millions to put a satellite into orbit, and nearly half a billion every time the space shuttle went up. Sure, we want to build colonies on Mars, or maybe even go to space as a tourist. You might be able to buy a ticket into space for upwards of 250000 to $20 million. But at these prices, it's hard to be able to do a lot in space. Enter the idea of a space elevator. A space elevator is a giant cable that would link us and space. We could use it to transport materials to assemble a space station, resources for colonies on the moon and Mars, and even people. A space elevator might cost billions of dollars to construct, but it would dramatically cut the cost of putting anything into space. We see space elevators turn up a lot in science fiction. But would it really be possible to build one? Why would a space elevator work? If we put a cable up, it would fall back to Earth. However, if we put a cable up far enough, the rotation of the Earth itself would keep the cable taut and tight. We could then use climbers to go up and down, transporting materials. In the real world, you would need something remarkably strong to make this cable. Some people believe that carbon nanotubes are a good candidate. Carbon nanotubes are one of the strongest materials we know of, at 260 times the strength of steel. Not everyone believes it's possible to use carbon nanotubes, but many people do. So far, the longest carbon nanotube we've made is only a few inches long, and we would need one about 60,000 miles long to construct our space elevator. But as far as we know, there's no theoretical reason why we wouldn't be able to construct one. So we can imagine one day, when our technology is advanced enough, we could be able to build a cable of carbon nanotubes this long. So now we have our space elevator. Now what? Well, it turns out that a space elevator is prone to a lot of problems. And I mean a lot. For example, wind could make the cable vibrate back and forth violently. If the speed of the wind was just right, it could hypothetically hit the resonant frequency of the cable itself, making the vibrations become larger and larger until the cable tears itself apart. We've seen something similar happen to the Tacoma Narrows Bridge. Wind caused the bridge to hit its resonant frequency, creating huge waves in the bridge until it collapsed. A second problem would be lightning. Building a space elevator is essentially putting a giant rod in the sky. Coat it with a thin film of water from a rainstorm, and boom, you can easily imagine that our elevator would serve as the path of least resistance for a giant electrical charge. Then our elevator could be hit by meteors, and even human-made space junk orbiting the Earth. And don't forget the human element, a terrorist attack. Any of these could cause the elevator to break and collapse, and the results could be catastrophic. 
At best, the elevator would be flung off into space. Or at worst, it could wrap itself around the Earth, acting like a giant line of meteors hitting the surface of the Earth. Not good. But there are hypothetical ways around these. In fact, the NASA Institute for Advanced Concepts program has a long report on the feasibility of a space elevator, how it would be built and deployed, and how each of these problems could be addressed. It suggests putting the elevator in places with low wind and few lightning strikes. It plans out a unique, ribbon-like structure that could avoid major damage due to meteors. Space junk might be another matter. A piece of low-orbiting space junk is projected to hit the elevator on average once every 260 days. Luckily, any sizable piece of space junk is actually tracked, and the elevator could be moved by a small amount to avoid it. So is a space elevator possible? There's nothing saying that it isn't. It's just really, really hard. If we were to overcome the technical and human difficulties, it is possible that one day we could build one. In fact, China might have one by 2045, and Japan is hoping to have one by 2050. Building one on the moon might even be easier, since you don't have to worry about space junk, wind, or lightning. Is it possible? Perhaps. Easy? Heck no. Perhaps one of the most enviable pieces of equipment from science fiction is a transporter. Beam me up, Scotty. Converting a person into an energy pattern, it then reconstructs that person somewhere else. It would be an excellent way to get past your morning commute, or travel to Tahiti, or even to the other side of the solar system. But would a transporter actually be possible to build? There's a few different ways that we can think about building our hypothetical transporter. The first is using a 3D printer. An object can be scanned, and then layer by layer, printed somewhere else. But this isn't really a transporter. You're not getting the same object, you're just getting a copy. It might be a great way to print tools on the moon, or order something from Amazon, but you're not going to transport yourself like this. At best, you'll get a clone, and at worst, a lifeless mannequin. So what other ways could we build a transporter? One way people have talked about transporting information across vast distances is using quantum entanglement. On the surface, it seems like we could even communicate faster than the speed of light. So how does quantum entanglement work? Let's say that we have two entangled light bulbs that could turn on either red or green. When we turn them on, we don't know what color they will be, but we do know that wherever the light bulbs are, they'll always be the same color, even if they're on other sides of the universe. So let's put our two entangled light bulbs on opposite sides of the galaxy. According to relativity, Nothing travels faster than the speed of light. So this means if the two light bulbs were communicating in traditional means, the fastest that one light bulb can send a signal to the other light bulb is 100,000 years. But according to quantum entanglement, when you turn on one light bulb and measure it to be green, the other light bulb on the other side of the galaxy would simultaneously also be green. So how are these light bulbs communicating? It seems like they're breaking the laws of relativity and communicating faster than the speed of light. And many people have wondered, can we use the concept behind quantum entanglement to send a message or a signal or information about particles across the universe faster than the speed of light? Unfortunately, this probably isn't possible. The information communicated between the two light bulbs is random information. In other words, no net useful information is being passed between our light bulbs. 
So therefore, we can never encode a message, a particle, or a person, and send them across the galaxy faster than the speed of light using quantum entanglement. But let's remove the constraint of speed. Could we send something slower than the speed of light? There's another method called quantum transport. Each particle has a bit of information encoded on it. Like the bits in your computer, these quantum bits of information are called qubits. And it's been shown in the lab that we can transfer qubits from one side of the lab to another, encoding the qubits on a new set of particles. But again, even though these particles might be indistinguishable from the original, they aren't the original, they're just a copy. Could you do this for a human? Well, there are many cells in your body, and every one of them would need to be reconstructed. There's an article on Forbes that points out that there are 100 billion neurons in your brain, and 100 trillion connections between these neurons. This means that there are 10 to the power 30 trillion states that would need to be transported. We need a pair of particles for each of these states. And since this number is larger than the number of particles in the entire universe, it's looking pretty unlikely that we'll be able to use quantum transport to transport a person. In movies such as The Matrix, The Terminator, or Her, we saw a future with super-intelligent AI or robots. Sometimes, these were even smarter than people. Is it possible to have an artificial intelligence smarter than a person? This idea is called the singularity. The idea is that artificial intelligence can continually improve upon itself, becoming smarter and smarter. Eventually, it will reach a runaway condition where it becomes so smart that it's actually smarter than a human being. We don't know what a world with super-intelligent machines would look like, and that's why we call it the singularity. We can't see beyond it, and it's hard to even fathom this type of world. Is it possible? The idea is based loosely on Moore's Law, which has correctly, so far, predicted the exponential increase in computing power. You can place a human brain on this scale and see that very soon, computers will bypass the human brain when it comes to sheer computing power. But getting a superintelligent AI assumes two things. Moore's Law is talking about the power within silicon chips, something that's physical and we can understand. It also assumes that the human brain is a mere calculator. It doesn't take into account consciousness. We don't really understand what consciousness is, and even if it's possible to create one that's artificial. But as far as sheer intelligence, 75% of AI researchers believe that we will in fact reach the singularity. But most, two-thirds, believe that this will happen 25 years or more from now. Some, like futurist Ray Kurzweil, believes that it will happen by 2045. But that's not a popular opinion. So many AI researchers agree that the singularity is indeed coming. But what they disagree on is what it means. Some people think it'll be awesome. AI and humanity will team together to solve any problem. Cancer? Cured. Climate change? Solved. Interstellar travel? Accomplished. Some even believe that we'll be able to upload our minds onto chips and finally attain immortality. But others aren't so optimistic. People like Elon Musk and Stephen Hawking predict that once we reach the singularity, the extinction of the human race isn't far behind. A superintelligent AI could turn against us, or it can kill off humanity inadvertently. For example, there's a thought experiment called the paperclip experiment. Imagine a powerful AI whose sole initiative is to acquire as many paperclips as possible. 
It collects all the paper clips on Earth, and then begins to convert rocks, buildings, humans, and eventually the entire planet into a big pile of paper clips. It doesn't do this for any malice directed at humanity. It just destroys humanity because its goal, collecting paper clips, is different than our goal, survival. But let's get back to the idea of the singularity. Will AI actually be smarter than us? Maybe. It may be able to solve problems, do vast calculations, and beat us at any board game that we can think of. It may even turn the world into a big pile of paperclips. But will it be conscious? That I believe we can't answer. We don't really understand what consciousness is. Until we know that, we can't answer that question. We may not even be able to upload our brains onto a computer. And the AI might never have that spark of life that we call consciousness. Another coveted item of science fiction and fantasy is the invisibility cloak. Can we make a material that if we put it on, we disappear from view? Science says, maybe. In fact, we've already made very small invisibility cloaks. One way to do this is using metamaterial. Metamaterials are non-natural materials with tiny geometrical structures. These structures are smaller than the wavelength of light that they can divert. Whereas natural materials have a positive refractive index, these materials have a negative or near-zero refractive index. This would divert light around them and, in a sense, make them invisible. But so far, this only works in the microwave and for very small objects. It would be a lot harder and maybe even impossible to do it for a human in the visible spectrum. There's another option, and that's using carbon nanotubes. This cloak would get very hot and bend the light around it, making it disappear, sort of like what you would see in a desert mirage. But again, this only works for very small objects, and they have to be inside of water. But get this, invisibility cloaks might have existed all the way in Roman times. The Roman Colosseum is essentially a giant invisibility cloak that hides it from seismic waves. The shape of the Colosseum guides seismic waves around it, and could explain why it's still standing after all these years. I'm sure there's at least a few people out there who have lost sleep thinking about a Sharknado descending on their coastal town. But come on, can that really be possible? On land, tornadoes can be incredibly powerful. They can be truly terrifying to watch. The most powerful tornadoes can reach speeds up to 300 miles per hour and have picked up all sorts of things, boulders, furniture, people, and even cars. Some have even stripped the roadway straight off the ground. Most times, heavy things like cars, however, aren't carried very far, at most about a half a mile. But cyclones over water, or water spouts, are much less powerful. A big water spout reaches about 50 miles an hour, but some can reach even up to 150 miles per hour. But can it really pick up a shark? There have been some pretty strange reports of water spouts, cyclones, and tornadoes picking up weird things. In 1894, a tornado picked up stinging jellyfish and dropped them onto Bath, England. In 2010, fish were sucked up and fell into a town in Australia. Florida even saw a shower of golf balls. And in 1877, small alligators rained down on a South Carolina farm. Still, this is a pretty far cry from a great white. And even if a shark could be picked up by a tornado, it probably wouldn't eat you. Contrary to popular belief, a water spout is not filled with water. So the shark wouldn't be able to breathe. It might fall on you, but it won't come out ready to chow down. 
Now, it might crush you, but that's a different movie. Now, obviously, people aren't going to movies like Sharknado to get a science lesson. It may be fun entertainment, but don't let it keep you up at night. Movies such as Armageddon and Deep Impact talk about a meteor hitting the Earth, and the brave people who try to stop such an impact. Movies like this are normally laughed off the stage for being wildly implausible, but are they really? We can break these into two parts. The first, is it possible that a giant asteroid will hit the Earth? And the answer is, with 100% certainty, yes. Asteroid impacts are part of life in the dynamic solar system. They are responsible for assembling our planet and causing the extinction of species. And they will happen again. There are plenty of examples in history that we can look at. In 1908, a giant meteor, 10 meters in diameter, exploded in the sky above Siberia. This meteor didn't even hit the ground, but it leveled 80 million trees and exploded with the power of a thousand times the bomb dropped on Hiroshima. 50,000 years ago, a meteor about 50 meters across hit the desert in Arizona. It impacted with the force of 20 million tons of TNT and created Meteor Crater, which is over 1.2 kilometers in diameter and 183 meters deep. But these are both relatively small meteors. The meteor that allegedly killed the dinosaurs, creating the Chicxulub Crater in the Yucatan, was caused by a 10 to 80 kilometer diameter asteroid. And the largest crater that we know of on Earth is more than 300 kilometers across the Raidfort Crater in South Africa. This was made about 2 billion years ago from an asteroid that was about 10 to 15 kilometers in diameter. If we look far back in the history of the Earth, we see that asteroids with a diameter of 5 kilometers hit Earth on the average of once every 20 million years. Ones that are 1 kilometer in diameter hit the Earth on average once every half a million years, and ones that are 5 meters across hit the Earth every year. I believe that undiscovered asteroids hitting the Earth are probably one of the single biggest threats to all of life on Earth, and Stephen Hawking happens to agree with me. So the second part of our movies like Deep Impact and Armageddon Plausible is what could be done about it. Well, there are several different organizations whose goal is to find and attract near-Earth asteroids. In 2016, the Planetary Defense Coordination Office at NASA was created. In addition to finding and tracking objects that might hit the Earth, they also want to learn about these objects, figure out what they're made of, how they're structured, if they are rotating, and so on. At the beginning of 2019, there were over 19,000 near-Earth objects discovered, with more than 30 being added every single week. But they estimate that we only know about a third of the asteroids that are actually out there. That means if an asteroid is to hit the Earth, we probably don't even know about it. And if we discover an asteroid with only hours before it hits the Earth, there's not much we can do about it. But let's say that we do know about an asteroid years or even decades before it's due to hit the Earth. In Armageddon and Deep Impact, they send teams of astronauts to plant bombs deep within the asteroid to blow it to smithereens. Is this the best course of action? But to know this, we really need to know what we're up against. And for this, early detection is the key. If we discover an asteroid a few hours, days, or months in advance, there's not much we can do, unfortunately. But if we discover it years or decades before it hits the Earth, we may be able to do something. And to know what's the best strategy, we need to study the asteroid. Sending a small fleet of space probes to study the asteroid and learn about its composition, makeup, and spin is critical. Most asteroids aren't one giant rock. They're actually a giant rubble pile. And asteroids like this would need a very different path to deflect them. 
Nuclear weapons are a possibility, but probably not like the way we see them used in the movies. We probably don't want to destroy the asteroid completely. First off, it would be really hard to predict how the asteroid would break up, because we don't know about its internal structure, cracks, and the interior composition. And if it breaks up in a way we don't anticipate, it might just make a roll pile that will be even harder to deal with. Any pieces larger than 35 meters would not burn up in the atmosphere. Plus, it would take an enormous amount of nuclear weapons to completely destroy an asteroid. Instead, people have talked about detonating a weapon slightly at or above the surface of an asteroid. This would work best for solid asteroids. A blast could slightly nudge the asteroid, causing it to miss the Earth. If it was a rubble pile, a series of nuclear blasts to one side of the asteroid could give it a push. There's also the option of putting something in the way to intersect the asteroid. For example, we could set up several space probes to act as stumbling blocks, little things that the asteroid would crash into on the way to Earth. These so-called kinetic impactors would slow the asteroid down, and perhaps enough to just miss the Earth. If we have enough time, we could also use something called a gravity tractor. Send up a spacecraft, and the spacecraft and the asteroid would be drawn together gravitationally. You could even put something like an ion thruster on the spacecraft, causing the spacecraft to be more stationary and the asteroid to be drawn more towards it. This would work no matter what the asteroid is made of, if it's spinning, if it's a rubble pile, or solid rock. The only downfall is that it would take a very long time to do. And perhaps my favorite proposal is to paint the asteroid white. There's something called the Yarkovsky effect. Photons from the sun would push on the asteroid, imparting their momentum more than when the asteroid was dark, changing its speed. Overall, these proposals don't focus on destroying the asteroid. That's really hard to do. Instead, they gently deflect the asteroid, moving it out of the way. There was a project within NASA to actually practice this. It was called the Asteroid Redirect Mission, or ARM. It was going to retrieve a 4-meter boulder from a near-Earth asteroid and redirect it to lunar orbit, where it could be studied. Directing a piece of rock like this will give us good practice on how to redirect an asteroid. Unfortunately, in 2018, the project was cancelled. So will the Earth get hit by an asteroid? With 100% certainty, yes. But to protect ourselves, we need to be prepared. We need to know the asteroid is heading our way far in advance, and having protocols in place ahead of time will help us to act fast. Therefore, we really need to fund projects that look for near-Earth asteroids. Finding these objects early might be our only hope for us, and maybe one of the most important ways we can spend our money. I hope you've enjoyed looking at these science fiction concepts with me. And even though a transporter might be a bit far from reality, it gives us some interesting insight into the quantum world that we may not have considered before. And though movies like Armageddon may be filled with scientific follies, they do give us a good reason to actually do research into near-Earth asteroids. Thanks to a patron of the podcast, Mary, for suggesting that we talk about a transporter in this episode. If you want to become a patron, you'll get access to advanced content, and may even be able to suggest topics or ask questions about the podcast. And if you want to become a patron, check out the website at sparkdialogue.com or head over to patreon.com sparkdialogue. Spark Dialogue Podcast is produced by me, Elizabeth Fernandez. You can find us at the web at sparkdialogue.com. Thanks for joining us, and see us in two weeks for another episode. Some of the background music you heard is produced by me. Others are clips from Rewound by Chris Zabrowski. Envision by Kevin McLeod. I Don't Know by Grapes featuring Jay Lang and Marusk. Nothing by Kai Engel. 
The Vendetta by Stefan Kartenberg, and Crisis by Kevin MacLeod. More information about these songs can be found in the show notes at sparkdialogue.com.